This is Dr. Bob Patton. Welcome to Making Much of His Mission. His mission, of course, is to see many come to Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, so we can't be with Jesus Christ. The Bible says further, The wages of sin is death. We are separated from him and ultimately will go to hell. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He gives us this as a gift. We can't earn it, but we can receive it. For as many as received him, to them gave he power to become children of God. So as we receive Jesus Christ, he comes into our life, gives us his life, which is eternal life, and allows us to spend eternity with him. That is ultimately his mission. Let us all yield totally to the Lord Jesus Christ and accept him as our personal Savior. And now, the message for today. Welcome to the uh, MI-103 Introduction to Missions midterm uh, exam. Now, this is going to cover most of the questions fairly accurately as far as your midterm exam is concerned. Maybe you'll ask, well, Dr. Patton, why did you have this introduction? I wanted you to see that it is possible to have a brief presentation of the gospel put into these type of audios. So this is an opportunity for you to see what can be done. I simply recorded this, uh, put in the background music, and then put in these, this recording here. In Cernantongo, I did the same thing with 2,000 radio broadcasts, which were broadcast over four stations. Now it's only three. And at the present time, we were as high as 20 broadcasts a week. We are at 14 broadcasts a week which means that these people hear the gospel in brief that many times. So that's why I wanted you to hear it. Okay, so today we will look at most of the questions then on the midterm, uh, fall exam, I'm sorry, midterm spring exam. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help me to say what needs to be said and that uh, you would help the students to grasp the principles that we've learned so far so they'll apply them in their lives as well as on the test. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to start off remembering we talked about God's goodness. And one of the things, of course, I love to quote is the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And that's what we want. Because we have a good God, there is reason to repent and expect that the good God will do well. But God is good in everything he does. As people say, God is good all the time, in every way. He was good in creation. He was good in redemption. He's good in sanctification, making us come more like him. He's good in glorification. So God is a good God. His goodness is abundant. It's dependable. It's certainly greater than ours. And you find it everywhere all over the earth. How do we see God's goodness? Well, in creation, we talked about that. But what about what he's done for us? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He provided forgiveness for sins when we were actually his enemies. That's pretty good. And furthermore, he adopts us as his children and gives us an eternal inheritance in heaven as his children. That's our inheritance. So it is a dumb thing to think, well, I should trust myself and my judgment rather than trusting the good God 
who knows everything, who has all power, and can do anything and everything to run my life. No, I know better. And that is our sin nature. We also talked about God's salvation and how important it is. First of all, God is a salvation that is different from every other type of salvation that you find. All the other salvations save yourself by good works. But God did it uniquely. First of all, he gave us a unique unique Savior who lived a unique life, who did never sin, and who died for everybody, even those who reject him. Actually, he died for them. They just didn't accept what he did for them. And furthermore, he died in a rather unique way. He dismissed his spirit. Nobody took it from him. And he had a unique resurrection up through the clouds. So our God is a unique God. And you say, well, if he died for all mankind, then everybody's going to get saved. No, 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 no. All of them that received him, to them gave he power to become children of God, even to them that believed on his name. All of them who received, believe and receive. Repent, turn away from sin, turn towards the Savior. We've seen movements uh, towards universalism. Even Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, has begun to say, well, if you're a sincere Buddhist or you're a sincere Muslim, you can go to heaven. That is not true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. That is extremely exclusive. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Ye must be born again. The world hates that, particularly our postmodern world. But that is the truth, and we do not do anyone a favor to water that down. Furthermore, when you receive Christ, he indwells you spiritually. And when he indwells you spiritually, he changes you, and your life will change. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things, old things are passed away. New, all things have become new. And I can remember struggling with a variety of things in my life. Oh, on the outside, people thought that I was a model Christian. But and I knew better. My wife, of course, knew better. She knew me. But uh, the outside people might not. But I'm a new creation. And then it was not a mere profession. I had made a mere profession years before that, at least 15 years earlier. But it was 36 years of age before I really, truly trusted Christ and received him. How did that happen? Well, God gives us two things that every man has. Every man has the witness of creation. And if we are honest with ourselves, even though I was steeped in evolution, in heart of hearts, I knew there had to be some sort of creator to create all what we see around us. Couldn't just happen by itself. And secondly, God gives us a conscience. And I had a number of times that my conscience bothered me for various things that I had done. Uh, I remember one of my son, my son one day, and uh, we became convinced that he was saved. He was about five years of age, 
and he came and confessed something to his mother that um, nobody but he knew. It wasn't some big deal, but it was definitely something that was against our rules. And so she said, Mark, has this been bothering you? Yes. How long has it been bothering you? And he told her. And so when we talked to each other, we know that he had made a profession to pray for Christ coming into his life, but you don't know. But here you have real evidence that the that his sins were bothering him, that his conscience was bothering him, and he wanted to get forgiveness for sins. And that is a mark of what God has done. So God gives us creation as a witness. He gives us conscience. And, of course, he also gives revelation. Not everybody has the Bible, but everybody can see around them the creation, and God puts a conscience in everybody. Now, it's possible to sear your conscience if you work at it long enough, but God gives them. Now, we must realize that Jesus Christ died for all mankind. There are people uh, of uh, what I would call hyper-Calvinism that would say that Jesus died not only for the elect, which is, of course, true, he died for the non-elect too, but he died just for the elect. And that is not true. He was a propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but those of the whole world. God wants everybody to repent and come uh, to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. To do this required Jesus Christ to die on the cross. And redemption is costly. It costs the person who redeems. And in this case, it cost Jesus Christ his life. Did this occur in history? Yes, it did. This is not a figment of imagination. This is not a mythological story. This is something that really happened in real history. And in fact, the best attested fact in all of ancient history is the resurrection of Jesus Christ by objective criteria used by historians. Now, we also see that those who reject God's way tend to react and persecute the righteous, the unrighteous persecuting the righteous. Now, that seems strange, but that's the way our old sin nature works. And uh, when we see Adam and Eve, uh, Adam, did you eat the fruit? Oh, God, the woman that you made gave it to me, and I ate. Uh, Eve, did you eat? Well, God, the serpent, of course, who made the serpent, beguiled me, and I did eat. Cain, do you know that you're supposed to bring a blood offering? Yes, Cain did. Although it's not specified there, I'm quite certain that he did. Abel did. And now Cain uh, brings uh, the fruit of the ground, which God, by the way, has cursed, and thus uh, his offering was rejected. But instead of going to Abel and getting a lamb and being accepted by God, what does he do? He kills him. Now, we talked also a little bit about what we call dispensations. We're not going to go into a big deal about dispensations in this class. Uh, that's uh, a little more uh, detail in other courses. But dispensation is a way that God works. And uh, if you take the classic dispensationalism, uh, then you would say that God work, you have the time of conscience, and, uh, well, you have the time of innocence, and then conscience, and then law, and uh, promise and then law and grace. Uh, 
uh, and so forth. Well, during this time of uh, innocence, of course, that's the time of Adam and Eve prior to the fall. The time of conscience really uh, goes at least to the time, it goes to the time of the Tower of Babel, uh, Bible. And in that time, two men in particular are brought in. One is Enoch. We don't know a whole lot about him except that he was a preacher of righteousness and he preached the second coming of Christ. We find that out in the New Testament. But God took him home. He was a preacher of righteousness. The second one who we know a great deal more about is Noah. And these are two of the preachers of righteousness during the age of dispensation of conscience. Following this, of course, is the dispensation of promise, which is the time of Abraham and then Isaac, Joseph, Joseph uh, Judah, and so forth. And then we come to the time of law, which is the time of Moses. Those are hundreds of years later. Now, God dealt with all of mankind through the dispensation of innocence, of course, Adam and Eve, and also that of conscience, which is going through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. That is from creation uh, to the fall, uh, to the list of uh, patriarchs and Enoch going directly to heaven without dying, and uh, then Noah and the flood, and then the dispersion of the 70 nations, and finally uh, stopping after the Tower of Babel. People that uh, lived after those people, like uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, the time of Moses, uh, that's the time of the law, then the time of Judges, and the time of uh, David and the kings, of course, is all much later. So in that first section of Genesis 1 through 11, all men fell with Adam. All men were tested with the testing there. And all men received the substitute of salvation, the skins that were placed on Adam. And so we see that God dealt universally with man in that whole period of time. Now, apart from the religion of, apart from God, is um, at this time what we could call natural religion or the religion of the natural man would probably be a better way to say it, is the idea that I can come to God and I can save myself through what I do. It can be works that I do. It can be sometimes sacraments that I perform. Uh, can be good deeds. It can be avoiding evil like holding the Ten Commandments. By the way, nobody does that. And it's avoiding needing a Savior. And that is every religion with the exception of biblical Christianity. But you see, then, once God started to use a particular people, he wasn't interested in everybody anymore. That's not true. In fact, the very first thing he says to Adam is, uh, I'm sorry, Abraham, Abraham uh, received the promise, and he promised him a land, he promised him a posterity, and he promised him that he would bless all mankind. Look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. <clears throat> 
And during the next, uh, well, actually from there all the way to the crucifixion, God is dealing primarily with the Jews, but not exclusively with the Jews. He calls Israel, especially after uh, Israel comes out as a nation, uh, is crosses the Red Sea, and now is sitting before him at Mount Sinai and then accepts what God says. He says they are to be a holy nation. He did not send them out to go round up people like we are supposed to do today as missionaries. He says, you set the example and call all other people to come to worship the true God. So the command in the Old Testament is really come. The command in the New Testament is really go, where they are supposed to go out. Now, during this period of time, for instance, uh, they had their worship system, they had the, the tabernacle, and then later had the temple. And Solomon, who built the temple, was very clear on his prayer of dedication that this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all people. And they had a section set apart for the heathen to be able to come. And so the un, the non-Jew Gentiles could come into the court of the Gentiles. And then it was further beyond that, it's Jews and then Jewish men and then priests. And then finally the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go only once a year and only with blood for his own sins and the sins of mankind. So the temple was to be a house of prayer for all people. This is why Jesus got so mad, uh, so upset, when they started selling animals in the court of the Gentiles. They said, that's convenient, we'll do it. And so they made a, um, what we would call a wo a place to sell stuff. It's how you're going to pray when all you're hearing is the lowing of cattle and smelling the poop and all the rest, and, it's, and people hollering and selling and this... If you've ever been in a um, Near Eastern market or a Third World market, a pretty noisy place. No place to try and pray. And that's why Jesus got mad and he angry, I should say, and drove them out. In addition to uh, the priests who were to get the people to have proper relationship with God through prayer for them and offering for them, he also raised up prophets. These prophets were supposed to be a certain type of person, and a rather special type of person, actually. Uh, they were supposed to be incorruptible. You couldn't buy them off. They were supposed to be uh, unprejudiced. And many of them, for example, Amos, uh, when he starts marching, uh, putting the woes, he talks about the woes of all the nations around him. Maybe everybody's cheering. And then he comes down to Israel and Judah. And so they're not to be just prejudiced against every other nation, but to judge their own selves. They had the authentication of the Holy Spirit. And especially the writing prophets, people knew that they were authenticated. And what they wrote down was the word of God. For example, when even when Samuel was a young boy, people recognized that God had raised up a prophet among them. They are to give objective proof and 
the Holy Spirit in them gave authority to what they said. So they realized, they thundered out, thus saith the Lord. This is not what I am saying. This is what God is saying. Well, although Israel in general did not do what it should do, it began to turn off the Gentiles more and more. There were some that were brought into the line. Uh, probably one of the first people I can think of is as the people are going into Jericho. They've walked through the wilderness and now they're going into Jericho and they meet Rachel the um, harlot. I mean, that's what they call her. And uh, she ends up recognizing and acknowledging the true God and joins the people of Israel after the rest of the families are destroyed. Her family st stays alive because they stayed in a house which God protected. And she actually becomes in the line of Jesus Christ. Ruth is another. <clears throat> Ruth, lovely story, but Ruth is a Moabite. Uh, they had the terrible god Chemos that they would offer uh, people to their human sacrifices to them. And yet, Ruth says, "My God shall be uh, your God shall be my God, and your people shall be my people, and uh, till death do we part." And so, actually, Ruth becomes with Boaz in the line of Jesus Christ. We do have a couple missionaries that actually went out to preach, uh, rather reluctantly, I might say. Uh, Jonah need to be persuaded, and when he tried to run away, as you know, to Tarshish, that's Spain. Uh, God prepared a fish. The people had to th throw him off the, uh, the um, boat so the boat wouldn't sink. And the fish swallowed him and delivered him just where he needed to be, at Nineveh. And he preached and a huge revival was there. Also, the Bible tells a couple interesting stories about people that are actually quoted by Jesus later on. One of them is the healing of Naaman the leper. The thing that's interesting is that Naaman is actually a very famous general of the Syrian army, the, uh, the enemy of uh, the Jews. And actually it's a small Israelite girl who was a slave girl who says to her, uh, her mistress, I wish that um, your husband would go to Elisha who will cure him of his leprosy. And he did. And he got cured. Uh, another is uh, Elijah. Elijah went um, to uh, dry up the, uh, the entire land by praying that rain would not fall down. Didn't fall for three and a half years. Stayed by the book, uh, the brook Kit, um, Bezo, I think. I can't remember the exact name of the creek. And when the creek dried up, God sent him to Sorepa, which is just outside of Sidon. In, he met a woman there who was a foreign woman. And she took him in, and he worked a miracle, providing food for the three of them when they would have otherwise starved and died. So Ruth, Rahab, Jonah, Naaman, uh, Elijah, uh, for the, a woman outside of Sidon, all of these 
are evidences of cross-cultural evangelism. There are also some strange but true witnesses to the true God outside of the Jews in the Old Testament after the Torah of Babel. One of them is Job. Job is a man from the country of Uz, which is somewhere in the Middle East, and um, richest man around, and he was the most righteous man uh, in the world at that time. He lived about the time of Abraham. He gave a strong testimony of the true and living God, but he was a Gentile. Another one was a mysterious man called Melchizedek. He's the king of Salem. Abraham wins a battle against some kings, comes back, and he shows up and gives him bread and wine. And Abraham gives him 10% of what he had. And Melchizedek blesses him. We believe that that is a theophany, a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus Christ. But here are two Gentile witnesses to the true living God. Now, there are all kinds of witnesses against that, but there are two of them. Another one I might mention, I believe, would be Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, who ends up uh, worshipping the true and living God. Jesus himself, when he came, not only reached out for the, as presented himself as king of the Jews and came primarily to the Jews, they rejected him and uh, said, we will not have this man to reign over us. But he also reached out to the Gentiles. For example, he uh, spoke about Several of the people we mentioned, the healing of Naaman the Syrian, said, hey, there were lots of lepers in Israel, but God didn't choose them. He chose a guy outside in Syria. He said there were lots of widows who were starving, but he sent Elijah to um, a woman just outside Sidon. She was a foreigner. People got so mad they tried to kill him when he said that. Jesus also, many times in ministry, ministered to a Syrophoenician woman healing her daughter. He uh, ministered to a centurion, healing his uh, sick servant. said, I haven't seen such great faith anywhere in Israel. So Jesus reached out into the, the Samaritans. Several times he talks about the Samaritans who were hated by these people. Now, so the task in the Old Testament was to call people to come but the task in the New Testament is to go out and seek them. That's the task of the church. One of the ways that this comes about, of course, is the Great Commission, where Jesus, the King of the universe, the King of the world, is sending out his ambassadors. We are ambassadors for Christ throughout the world, calling them to reach all people, and to come and worship the true and living God. Now, in Matthew 20, I'm uh, sorry, 28, 18 to 20, uh, we have uh, first the statement that Jesus said, I have all power, all power is given to me, or authority, authority is given me in heaven and earth. Then he talks about making disciples, and he puts it into three parts. Number one, going. 
That's a participle. Number two, baptizing, also a participle. Number three, teaching them to know everything that I taught you. Okay, so that is discipleship, and that is the heavy focus. And so pure evangelism is not good. For a, piece, for a part of a time, that was, I felt, a fault that occurred in China Inland Mission, where they so focused on evangelism, scattering people all over, often splitting up husbands and wives so one can go one way and another another to preach the word, that they neglected the nature of church building and building a solid foundation. Fortunately, there were, there were those who did have that, so when the, ch when the church was attacked by the communists and all the Christians, pastors basically were all imprisoned, and all the missionaries were shipped out, there was still a core that kept the flame alive, but it was uh, a pretty tense time. Okay, then Jesus calls us also to take up our cross and follow him. First of all, he calls us to do that. He doesn't force us to do that. He even says, take up your cross daily. Now, what is this then? And why is it necessary for discipleship? Well, first of all, it's, uh, it is to be for the sake of Jesus. It's not, you know, I'm going to discipline myself so I can run a race faster and I'll beat everybody else. It's not that, but it's necessary for discipleship. And he said, if you don't take up your cross, he cannot be my disciple. And so it is absolutely required. It's a thing we do day to day. And basically we're talking about death to self. As we go, we preach the gospel. Gospel is outlined, among other places, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, especially verses uh, 3 and 4. Uh, and it talks about Jesus who died for our sins, was buried and rose again for our sins. Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, key elements of the uh, gospel, and that was done as a, as a way of redeeming us and freeing us from the penalty of death and our sins. As we go out, we say, for Jesus' sake, yes. So we go out for Jesus. But because Jesus said, lo, I am with you always, and in fact, not only is he with us, he lives in us, then we can say that we are working not only for him, but with him. And how does that happen? Jesus doesn't climb in in a bodily form. It happens through the Holy Spirit. And so this is spiritual unity. So as we go forth in the Great Commission, we should be loyal to the Word of God and totally sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ, not depending on ourselves, but depending on the power that Jesus gives us through the Holy Spirit, and determined to keep going. Why? He says, occupy until I come. Well, he hasn't come back. Then we're to occupy, that is, we're to work. Paul himself talks about the power that we have when we do this, and he talks about uh, wanting to know Christ. He says, I want to know him 
and the power of his resurrection. Hey, that's great. And I think everybody say, yeah, I want to do that. But then he goes on to say, and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable to his death. Uh-oh, there's a fairly high price to pay for this intimate knowledge. But it is worth it. And in fact, in most cases, ultimately, persecution and suffering for Christ's sake ultimately brings spiritual blessings. Now, it may be a time. You may not live to see all the blessings. I think particularly of the church in China. When my parents and my wife's parents were in China, there were, I don't know exactly, but at least a thousand missionaries in China and maybe a million or a little bit more than that uh, believers. The communists take over, Mao Zedong, and he was absolutely, he was an atheist and he was absolutely determined to absolutely destroy Christianity. And so he killed all the pastors or imprisoned them that were Chinese, kicked all the the uh, the foreigners out, usually didn't uh, stir up the pot so much by killing them, just kicked them out. Uh, and then uh, he might turn the church properties into such things as public toilets and other things uh, like that. And yet, out of that grew a huge Chinese Christian movement with many, many people getting saved. And now there are as many as some people estimate over 100 million Christians. Somewhere between 6 and 8% of the population is, is considered Christian. There may be more true Christians in China than there were uh, than there are true Christians in the United States. But the cost was high. There was a cost of suffering, but the blessings have been tremendous. And so very often, persecution and suffering, if it's for Christ's sake, will bring great blessings. This is being multiplied again in places like Sudan and South Sudan, where the church has grown enormously. We see the uh, same thing in certain parts of Africa, other parts of Africa. And also, it appears that that is occurring now in Iran. Now, when we look at the Great Commission, we need to remember that there are about half the population of the world has never heard the name Jesus Christ. About three and a half billion people. We need to realize also, time is short. Pastor has emphasized that. And we are commanded. That is a personal commission. You and I don't have to question that. Go into all the world. The commission is based not on us getting glory, but God getting glory. And that commission holds true today. It was given five times. It was given in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, in John, and also in the book of Acts. Now I'll spend a little bit of time talking about a few of the things in the book of Acts. Let's uh, remember in chapter 1, main things we saw there were the ascension of Jesus Christ, where uh, he told the people uh, that you'll, 
you will be my witnesses, martyrs, throughout the world, and go then to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. An outline of the book of Acts. Okay? He goes up into heaven. Uh, the angels say the same Jesus that you saw going up. Same way he got up, he's coming back. He'll be visible where he went up, Mount of Olives. Where he's coming back, Mount of Olives. He's coming back in the same form. He went up in the clouds, he'll come back in the clouds. The rest of the time is talking about uh, the choice of uh, Matthias uh, and the prayer in the upper room. Then we come to one of the most significant chapters in the Bible, and that is Acts chapter 2, where at the appropriate time after 10 days of prayer meeting, it, it arrives on the day of Pentecost, which is a major feast of the Jews. And Jews from all over the world come for that feast. And they hear the sound of wind. doesn't say there was a wind. It says they hear the sound of it. And they see something like tongues of fire. doesn't say it burned them. It says it looks like tongues of fire on the top of the 120 people there. And they heard them talking in known tongues. And by the way, known tongues are specified three times, and it is emphasized that people understood. And they would say, how come I'm hearing these guys who are Galileans, never been to my country, speaking clearly in my own mother tongue. How can that be? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, do we always speak in unknown tongues after we are filled with the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. In fact, when I went and looked it up uh, in the book of Acts and checked it out, I found 12 times it says they were filled with the Spirit and only one time when they were said anything about tongues. That's fairly striking. Now, in Acts chapter 2, it's clearly that, uh, that the tongues were unknown to the people speaking it, but they were known languages. And it is implied in Acts chapter 10 and 19 that it's because they said it's the same thing uh, that we would assume that the same evidence occurred at that point in time as well. Well, 3,000 people get saved, church starts. Now, uh, Peter and uh, John go, uh, sees a man that's lame from uh, birth, and uh, Peter says, rise up and walk, the guy does, huge crowd gathers, he preaches, and 5,000 are saved, uh, they are thrown in jail, uh, and the, um, they're brought out uh, before the Sanhedrin. And they said, in what name did you do this? And he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, that's who did this. And it's in his name that this man is whole now. Uh, later on, they go back and they continue to preach. They throw him back in jail and they bring him back out. And they said, did not we command you not to do this? And he said, you have to decide yourself. Is it better for us to listen to you? Or is it better for us to listen to God? We respect you, but you're not God. And so they were going to go on preaching. They wanted to kill him. They didn't. That was the first time, by the way, that the angels released him. Of course, Peter was released a second time. Now, if they'd been in today's society, maybe they said, well, we know that you're the authority around here and you've got the leadership and, and uh, you say that we can't preach, so I guess... I guess we just can't preach. But they didn't do that. 
They said, go, they prayed to the Lord. Lord, give us boldness to preach your message. About, uh, as we move on, uh, we find in Acts chapter 9, just after the salvation of Saul, that um, Peter raises uh, Dorcas, uh, also called Tabitha, for the dead. Uh, we find also in Acts chapter 20 that Paul raises Eutychus from the dead young boy, fell out of the uh, third floor while falling asleep listening to Paul preach. Uh, so those are two. And then uh, Peter and um, Peter and Paul, the only other person in the New Testament that we find that uh, raised anybody from the dead was Jesus. And he raised three people. Uh, he raised the daughter of Jairus. He raised the um, son of the widow of Nain. And he raised, of course, most famously, Lazarus. Uh, in the Old Testament, three more. Elijah, one, young boy. Elijah, Elisha, a young boy also. And then some uh, people were coming as they were burying a man. Moabites started to attack. And they threw the body of the dead man into the grave of Elisha. His body touched the bones that were still there of Elisha and he rose up and um, uh, rose up from the dead. And I don't know if they ran faster from him than they did from the Moabites, but it must have been a pretty exciting time. We move on uh, and talk in uh, chapter of course, in chapter 5, there's the story of Ananias and Sapphira uh, who were uh, tried to get honored for themselves by holding back some of the property money. If they had given some of the property money and said to Peter, Peter, uh, I would like to make a major contribution of part of our funds, but we need some for ourselves, he would have said, thank you very much for your generosity. But instead, they tried to play, this is the whole deal, and they ended up Ananias and Sapphira dead. Chapter 6, we find about the strife, uh, strife between the Greek-speaking uh, Jewish widows and the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows, uh, saying that the Jewish-speaking got a better deal than the, the Greek-speaking, and so they chose seven deacons, one of them being uh, Stephen, who comes into prominence at the end of chapter 6, and in chapter 7 he gives an impassioned uh, defense in front of the in front of the Sanhedrin, and then at the end is stoned, and by the uh, and a young man named Saul holds the clothes approving of his death. In chapter eight, Saul starts to run after people and persecute them, and in chapter nine, uh, he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road. In later part of chapter eight, we find that the another deacon, Philip, is. Uh, goes to Samaria, sees a great revival. They call up Peter and John to check it out. And then the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, moves him to the desert and he sees the salvation and baptism of the man, the eunuch from uh, Ethiopia. Chapter 10 and 11 is the story of how God dealt with Peter in terms of his going to a heathen by the name of Cornelius, a godly uh, Gentile. And at that time, he was uh, 
he was saved and spoke in tongues. And so it goes over that entire story. Chapter uh, 12 talks about the death of James, the apostle, uh, the brother of John, who was killed, and how Peter was imprisoned, and then an angel released him. Chapter 13, we come to the first missionary journey of, of Paul, uh, and he uh, and Barnabas were chosen by the Holy Spirit and confirmed by the church, uh, the other leaders first, and then the entire church, uh, and then they were set out. So first, the Holy Spirit says separate them out. Then the leaders prayed, and the church confirmed, and then they were sent out. Peter uh, was not involved in this. In the first 12 chapters, uh, God has told Peter, uh, Jesus told him uh, before he died, that he would have the keys of the kingdom and that uh, he would open certain groups. And indeed he did. In chapter 2, he opened the door to the Jews. Okay? So it was a Jewish feast of Pentecost where Jews were gathered and 3,000 got saved. Okay, in chapter 8, Philip sees Samaritans saved, but they send Peter and John to check it out. And so when Peter comes and he lays his hand on these people that have gotten saved, they begin to speak in tongues. And again, he has opened the door, you can say, to the Samaritans. They're kind of a mixture, half Jew, half heathen. And in chapter 10 and 11, pure heathen, pure heathen. And again, who goes there? That's again the hand of Peter going with some other men there. So he's the one to, uh, to do that. Now, although James was the first apostle to die as an as a martyr, the first Christian to die as a martyr was actually the deacon Stephen. And we recall that we just talked about that. And then he was killed uh, at the end. He was stoned to death at the end of chapter 7. And the beginning of chapter 12, we find that James, uh, the brother of John, was beheaded or killed by the sword, whether it was he cupped his head or just stuck the sword into him, I'm not quite, really shouldn't say. Well, off go P uh, Peter and, I'm sorry, Paul and Barnabas go to Cyprus. They see uh, the head of Cyprus there, uh, Sergius Paulus, probably gets saved, goes to Antioch and Pisidia, where they're kicked out uh, eventually. They go to Iconium, where they spent quite a bit of time, but then were eventually kicked out again by the Jews, and then go to Lystra. And in Lystra, they try to worship him because Paul heals a man who has been lame, and they say the gods have come back to us. They had a tradition that would talked about that. And um, Paul and Silas barely stopped them from worshiping him. And at just that very moment, Jews from Antioch and Iconium arrived, convinced the people these guys are impostors, and they stone Paul and drag him out as a dead dog and throw him out of the city. Now, whether he was killed or simply badly beaten and knocked unconscious is not clear. What is clear is that when he regained 
himself, whether either God raised him up himself or he regained consciousness. The reason, by the way, that they wonder about this is that Paul talks about a person he knew that went to the third heaven uh, 14 years earlier, and that may have been talking about this incident. We don't know. Paul goes back into Lystra, where he had been stoned. Then he travels the next day to Derby, about, I guess, 30 miles or so, turns around from Derby, comes right back again to Lystra, again, not intimidated by the stoning. And interesting, in the second trip, when he comes, he finds Timothy there. One question that um, I noticed a lot of people missed, I'm just going to mention it, is I asked how many times did an angel release Peter? And almost everybody said once. Well, everybody knows in Acts chapter 12 that an angel came. Peter was sleeping. He was chained to two guards. There were two other guards outside. The angel had to wake him up. The chains fall off. Everybody else is asleep. And the gates open by themselves till he gets out. Pretty dramatic uh, escape from prison. But they often forget the time in Acts chapter 10. I'm sorry, in chapter 5. Because Peter and John had been forbidden to preach. In Acts chapter 4, they start preaching again because they said we have to listen to God more than man. And then they imprison them. And they hold them overnight and they're going to bring them to the Sanhedrin in the morning. But earlier than that, in the night, an angel comes and releases both of them, frees them from prison, and said, go into the temple and start preaching. So when the Sanhedrin arrives, they get the guards and say, okay, bring these guys. And so the guys trot over and get to the place and said, okay, let's get these two guys and let's get back to the Sanhedrin. And the guards are there, gates are all locked, everything is normal, except no Peter, no John. And so they go back and tell the they go back and tell the Sanhedrin what happened. Sanhedrin's scratching their head, and just that time, someone runs in and says, hey, those guys you were imprisoned yesterday, they're in the middle of the temple preaching. And then they bring them, and they bring them back the second time. Um, and this time, uh, they wanted to kill them, but Gamaliel said, be careful what you're going to do with these men, and eventually they whip them. So remember, two times. So... Uh, that we know of, and maybe others, where Peter was released by angels. Now, one of the things I've tried to emphasize is the Pauline method. I've had people tell me that Paul traveled from place to place to place to place, never stayed more than six months. That is simply not true. Paul did travel to place to place. A lot of the times, the majority of the times, it wasn't that Paul wanted to leave. It was that Paul was forced to leave. Now you could argue and say, okay, you see, God wanted me to get out. You can say that, but that's not necessarily true. We do know that he spent 18 months in Corinth. And we do know that he spent about three years in Ephesus. So, and in Ephesus, and I believe also in Corinth, but certainly in Ephesus, it's very clear that he set up a training institute and sent out preacher boys to start churches. So, 
the idea that the only way you can do a Pauline method is to go from one place to another place, another place, another place, another place. Not really true. And Paul wanted to disciple his people. And the people he discipled the most were actually the people who traveled with him. And they stayed with him for years. Now, it's very interesting also to see how Paul approached the uh, people that he was dealing with. When he went to Antioch and Pisidia, he goes into the synagogue. In the synagogue, he preaches from the Old Testament, straightforward, starting in, at least in Antioch, uh, about the time of Moses and going straight forward from there. But those people have a lot of background as far as creation is concerned, uh, the nature of God, uh, all of those things. When he goes to Mars Hill, or he goes to Iconium, or he goes to Lystra, where the people are trying to worship him, and says, Stop! He starts with creation and works his way through. And we have found that by giving the people the background they need, just as God does, beginning in Genesis, that background is key to understanding the gospel and tying things together. And Paul does that. We call that the chronological method because you're working systematically on a time scale, from first things to second things to third things and so forth. So there was a difference between how he did it in Antioch, where he was talking to the Jews, and in Iconium, and in Athens, and in uh, Lystra and other places. Well, the second journey, Paul now is going with Silas. He and Mark, he, pardon, he and Barnabas split over the whole story of Mark, and Mark went with Barnabas, who wanted to give him a second chance. Paul didn't want to quit her, <clears throat> so he took, Barnab uh, he took Silas with him. They go through the same area initially, and then they get to uh, go farther uh, beyond Antioch and Pisidia to the west, and they want Paul wants to go to Ephesus, and the Holy Spirit says, nope. He wants to go to Bithynia, that is to go east and up into the uh, area around the Black Sea. Holy Spirit says, nope. And so he's cutting around the, uh, the district of Mycenae and ends up at Troas, or Troy, uh, right at the Aegean Sea, so he can't go any further. Uh, without swimming. And so um, he sees a vision of a man dressed typically like a Macedonian, says, come on over and help us. And so they go over. And now they're in Europe, and the very first person he ends up meeting and bringing to a saving knowledge of him, of Jesus, is a woman by the name of Lydia who sells purple dye. Following the Lydia, uh, he drives a demon out of a demon-possessed girl, uh, is jailed unjustly, beaten, both of them are, thrown into stocks. They have a praise service at night. God opens the doors. The jailer thinks everybody's escaped, going to kill himself. Paul says, don't do that, we're all here. And he falls on his knees and said, sir, what must I do? Be saved. And Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved, and their house. And he goes and preaches to them at that point in time, and they are saved. The 
that there is no evidence that at that time, those who unjustly treated him, the people who had bought the slave girl, the magistrates who beat him uh, without investigating or having any kind of trial at all, got saved. The only ones we know saved were the, at this time, were Lydia, probably the girls who were with her, the ladies who were with her, and the servant girl, and then also the jailer and the jailer's family. Paul goes on to, uh, then goes on to Thessalonica, uh, starts a church there, goes to Berea. Interestingly, we don't hear about a Berean church. At least I haven't seen much about that. Uh, goes on to Athens, preaches his famous uh, Mars Hill sermon. Again, heathen people starting from creation, working his way through. And then goes to Corinth, where he spends 18 months. A lot of stuff goes on there. Finds Aquila and Priscilla. And they have uh, a lot of turmoil during that period of time. Uh, and then uh, he heads back eventually to uh, Antioch and after a while starts on visit number three, which is even more lengthy, retracing his steps through uh, Turkey again, but this time turning and going to Ephesus where he spends three years. At Ephesus, there's a, a riot because his success in, in stopping idolatry is too great. One of the things that happened was that uh, there were seven sons of a Jewish sorcerer called Sceva, and they had seen Paul and had the idea that he cast out demons in the name of Jesus. So they said, well, if you can cast out a demons in the name of Jesus, we can cast out the names of Jesus. So they go to the um, this guy who's demon-possessed, and they say, we adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Come out. And the spirit answers back. By the way, spirits can answer back. I've had that happen twice. And said, um, Jesus I know. And Paul, I know, it really may be Paul, I know about, but who are you? And the evil spirit overpowered all seven men and chased them out. They say naked, probably just stripping off most of their clothes, and out they scatter and go. And by the way, demons are strong enough to do just that. I've seen uh, evidence of that a couple times. Uh, but uh, then everybody says, oh, don't mess with the name of Jesus. And uh, they get under conviction and they bring a huge amount of uh, different types of witchcraft and occult books and all sorts of things and burn them. They say the, the worth of it was 50,000 uh, denarii, and that is um, 30 is about the price of one slave, so that's a lot of money, probably several million dollars worth. Well... After the riot in Ephesus, Paul then goes into Macedonia uh, and then returns, coming back with, uh, I believe, seven by now of various people from some of these churches like uh, Thessalonica, Philippi, and so forth. He's picking up various ones and they're traveling with him. He determines to get to Jerusalem before the, uh, before the fast days. And so... He doesn't want to stop at Ephesus coming back. He said, that's going to take too long. But he sends a message ahead telling the Ephesian elders to meet him at a place called Miletus, which is on the shore. 
And so they stop briefly there, and he gives an absolutely fantastic sermon and preaches. From there on, coming back, he starts getting messages. Paul, you're going to be in jail. Paul, stop. Paul, don't go. Paul does not listen to these. Now, you could look at it and say, well, Paul was too spiritual to make a mistake, and these were just devil's testings. I don't believe that. Uh, I believe that he probably should have listened, but there's a lot of debate both ways, and nobody, I think, can say definitively, this is right and that's wrong. And at about that time, we come to the end of uh, his time in um, his travels. Now what happens is the Jews want him to purify them, himself and show them, I am still a Jew. So there's some guys, four guys, who have taken a Nazarite vow. And if you look it up, you'll see that at the end of a Nazarite vow, not only do you shave your hair off, but you got to bring two uh, lambs and a big ram for an offering. Well, that's a significant amount of money. So the Jewish elders say, listen, Paul, go with those four men and pay the money so that they can hold this Nazarite vow. And everybody will see that and they'll say, no, Paul holds the Jewish rule. Well, Paul went, but as soon as he went into the area, some people from Ephesium had seen him with Trophimus, who was an Ephesian, out in the open areas of the city, but they thought that Paul had brought Trophimus past the area of the Gentiles into the area of the Jews, which is punishable by death. And so they holler out and accuse him of this, and a huge riot occurs, and they drag him out and stick him outside the doors of the Gentile area, close the doors, and they're going to kill him right on the spot. And the Jews do have the rights to keep the temples uh, pure and so forth, and probably they would not have been persecuted. But at that moment, there's a Roman garrison that overlooks the temple because it's a place with a lot of problems come up, and so these guys come tearing down, and they get Paul, and they rescue him. Uh, and from now on, we'll stop at this particular point, and we'll talk about what happens uh, to him in the future in another session. So may the Lord bless you, and we will come to the conclusion of um, this audio test at this moment. And a final reminder, what we cannot do in our own strength, he can do through us. So as we try to apply what we've learned today, let us yield it to him and ask him to live his life through us. And once again, this is Dr. Bob Patton from Making Much of His Missions, wishing you a blessed day. God bless you.